following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, May 3rd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. How are we this morning, church? We've got a lot of work ahead of us, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 9. Uh, That's where we're going to be this morning, and as you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Simply this, how do you experience the Bible? Better yet, what do you experience when you read it? For example, when you, when you read the Bible and you come across a, a promise of God to you, does your mind and your heart immediately begin to qualify it and, and say to yourself, yes, I, I see that promise is there, but, but surely I've got to obey God enough to actually deserve it. Or maybe this is more like your experience with God's word. When you come across a command of God in the Bible, do you begin to think to yourself, there it is, I I see it, and I see how often I miss it. But I can trust God that Jesus has obeyed that command in my place and God's Holy Spirit is at work in me, making me more like Jesus. You see, these are two entirely different ways to experience God's word. One of them actually leads to you and I sensing more distance between us and God, while the other leads us to sensing a greater nearness between us and the Lord. Behind both questions... Behind both experiences, I should say, is the same question. And it's simply this. Who do you believe secures a better future for you? You or Jesus? The Bible would say that if you walk away from reading God's word feeling that the burden is on you, then you're spiritually blind to what God's word is saying. And your blindness is only reinforcing itself. But if you walk away from experiencing God's word knowing that Jesus has lifted the burden of perfection off of your shoulders and in return has given you his righteousness and the brightest of futures, then you can know that by the miracle of God's grace, your spiritual eyes have been opened. Friends, John chapter 9 is all about this miracle. In John chapter 9, we see the beauty of being seen by Jesus, which then enables us to actually see Jesus more clearly so that we can enjoy him more deeply and begin to reflect something of him to others more consistently. And once again, as we go through John chapter 9, listen. Listen for the conflict. God's grace in Jesus for the humble is is going to once again expose the emptiness of proud religion. And the question of who you believe secures the brightest hope for tomorrow is going to be presented. In fact, John, who wrote this gospel account, reminds us in John chapter 30, verse 31, that he wrote his gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Jesus came to give 
life, not empty religion. And the tension between the two is coursing through this chapter. And you and I are either going to be swept up by the current of religion or we're going to be swept up into the current of God's grace. And it all depends on how we see Jesus. So let's press into the story now so that we can see Jesus by God's grace with new eyes today. So John chapter 9, verse 1. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So, so right off the bat, we see again, as we've been seeing throughout this series, we're doing Jesus sees. He sees. He saw this man. And this man didn't see Jesus because John tells us that he had been blind since birth. But Jesus sees him and Jesus notices him. Jesus and his disciples are making their way and they're passing by where this blind man is. And I have to imagine that as Jesus saw him, began to notice him, probably began to slow down, that his disciples would notice this man as well. They would notice Jesus noticing this man. They would look and see what is it that's caught Jesus' eye. But just as they'll see this blind man, they won't see him the way that Jesus does. Jesus saw a man to be loved. His disciples, they, they saw in this blind man a problem to be discussed. They both saw the blind man, but Jesus saw a man to be loved and his disciples saw an object of theological speculation. Jesus saw a man to show compassion to. His disciples saw a man to speculate about. And right here from the jump in the story, the tension between the grace and truth of God personified fully in Christ is colliding with the religious impulses of the day. The disciples say this must be due to someone's sin. Now, they're not talking about sin in the general sense, in the sense in which in Adam's sin, sin entered into God's created order and existence and everything has been marred and broken by it since. They're not talking about that original disobedience of God that has been passed on by generation to each of us born on the earth. They're talking about someone's specific sin. They're presenting Jesus with a sort of theological equation. And in doing that, they are making a judgment about this man in their heart. Now, in one sense, all, all suffering, at an ultimate level, all suffering is due to sin. Adam's sin, which has given birth to my sin and your sin. But in any particular case of trial and suffering, it's often impossible to pinpoint exactly why specifically why it's come about. But Jesus' disciples and you and I, much like them, we, we like to speculate about such things because honestly, when we can get our head around it and come to an answer in our hearts about it, we can order our worlds better. Our world remains ordered and tidy. But when you and I begin to speculate and make judgments like this, what happens is it leads us to discussing suffering and theorizing about suffering 
much like Jesus' disciples here are, rather than actually doing anything to relieve it. One writer said this, this topic of who is to blame for this man's blindness, whose sin is to blame for this man's blindness, he said this is religion at its truest. And it's smug. But biblical faith, he said, calls for a restraint in judgment because God is involved in mysterious ways. But let's just be honest for a minute before we move on much further in the story. Making judgments in our hearts, much like Jesus' disciples are beginning to do with this man, it's, it's easier for us to do than showing compassion, isn't it? One lets us sit above a situation and speculate about it. The, the other requires us to actually enter in to understand. Speculation and the formulation of judgments in our hearts, it, it allows us to remain in control, to feel above the situation, in our, in our smuggest moments to feel superior to what we're seeing. We're on the throne in our own heart in the moment. And very practically, we can see a circumstance unfolding, a suffering or a trial unfolding right in front of us. We can look at it. We can speculate about it. We can make a judgment about it. We don't feel like we have to enter in to understand more about it because in our own minds, we've already decided why it's coming about. And then we can begin to talk about that person or that situation or, or try to fix it without fully ever understanding it. But compassion doesn't work that way. Compassion never speculates or speaks from the posture of being above. Jesus' disciples, they saw a problem to be speculated about, but Jesus saw a man to be loved. And they asked him, is this blindness a punishment for his parents' sin or a punishment for his own sin, even while he was in the womb? So in verse 3, Jesus answers, it, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. No, that wasn't the answer that his disciples were expecting. Jesus just said the decisive explanation for this man's blindness is not going to be found by looking for its cause, but by looking to its purpose. Jesus said the purpose for this man's blindness was to put the work of God on display. That God allowed this man to be born blind so that he could become living proof of what only God himself can do. And what is it that God can do? Well, here in John chapter 9, we see the miraculous healing grace of God. But at other times, like when the apostle Paul would cry out to God three times for him to remove a thorn from his flesh, God wouldn't heal him from that circumstance. Rather, God would sustain him by his grace through it. Telling Paul that my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. In both God's healing grace and God's sustaining grace, God is glorified and he is put on display. Jesus said this man's blindness and his subsequent healing, it's for the glory of God. Friends, our trials and our sufferings provide the same platform for the glory of God, rather his healing grace or his sustaining grace. I love the way that John Piper writes about it. Piper said, no matter what mess you're in or what pain you're in, 
the causes of that mess and that pain are not decisive in explaining it. What is decisive in explaining it is God's purpose. Yes, there are causes, some of them your fault perhaps and some of them not. But those causes are not decisive in determining the meaning of your mess or your pain. What is absolutely decisive is God's purpose. And if you hold fast to Jesus as your rock and your redeemer and your greatest treasure, God's purpose for your mess and your pain will be a good purpose. It will be worth everything you must endure. And we can know this is true because God says so. Romans 8, 28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Jesus said the decisive explanation for this man's blindness isn't going to be found by speculating about its cause, but by, by understanding its purpose. So Jesus goes on in verse four to say, we must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But you've got to understand in the fullness of context, I wish we had more time to dive into it more deeply because it's an amazing picture in the fullness of John's gospel. But this episode is occurring right on the heels of the Feast of Tabernacles. For the last few chapters, Jesus has been in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles in John's Gospel. And during that particular feast, one of the things that would occur as God had ordained to happen was these four golden lampstands that were 75 feet high. They would be lit in a portion of the temple. And it was said by writers then and historians that the light from those lampstands would light up the nearby area of the city. It was in that particular temple during that feast back in John chapter 4 that Jesus proclaimed to everyone who was around that he was the light of the world. What Jesus is saying is this. What is about to happen is actually a sign. The light of God is going to be shed on those who live in darkness. So having said these things, John says in verse 6, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so he went and he washed and he came back seen. The light of the world has enlightened this man's eyes. The man who we met who started as the object of theological debate becomes by the initiative and grace of Jesus the object of God's mercy. Jesus sees him and he shows compassion to him. Not to repay this man for anything that he brought to Jesus, not even as a response to this man's cry for mercy because we don't have one. He simply does it because it's who he is. He moves towards this man. This, my friends, is what theologians call the prevenient grace of God. You've got to come to love that term. The prevenient grace of God. God moves towards us before we ever even think about moving towards him. God's prevenient grace for us is an overwhelming love for people who don't only deserve God's love, but who are completely unaware of it. All we actually have to offer is our neediness. 
And the reality of it is you and I usually don't recognize even that. But God's love comes to us with prevenient grace. He doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He doesn't wait for us to love him in a particular way. First, he comes to us. Which is why John would write later in 1 John, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. We actually love because he first loved us. The Apostle Paul would say in Romans 5, 8, God showed his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That is the prevenient grace of God. Moving towards the undeserving and the unaware simply because that's who he is. Jesus took the initiative with this blind beggar that he comes across. And I want you to understand, friends, that this initiative we see here becomes all the more beautiful to our heart when we realize in the story we are blind beggars ourselves. But here's the problem. You and I don't like being needy. And so we're always looking for ways to fix it. And into our world comes every promise and every claim by every religion and every philosophy and every guru out there. Here's the way that you can make yourselves approvable. Here's the way you can make yourself better. Here's the way you can fix that innate sense of neediness in your heart. They always direct our attention to something that you and I can do to prove ourselves worthy. But the terms that they offer are never the terms of grace. They're always the terms of merit. And in the end, they always leave us exactly as we were at first. Because Jesus isn't in anything they're offering. But here's the thing. The gospel says that all of us are born spiritually blind and needy just like this man in John 9 and God in his grace comes and does for us and gives to us what we could not do for ourselves or provide for ourselves. All we have to offer is our neediness. Do you know what that means? That means that anyone can get in on the gospel because it's not about how qualified you are for it. Do you realize, friends, if God had not come to you first, church, do you realize this? If God had not come to you first by his prevenient grace, you would have never, ever moved towards him. If he hadn't come to you first and opened up your eyes to see Jesus for who he is, you would have never cared at all. One of my heroes, we, we talk about him often. We actually give you one of his books. If you're, if you're new to Redemption Hill, it's called The Gospel. It was written by a guy named Ray Ortland. In a sermon about a completely different encounter with Jesus, he said this, and I think it applies here. He says, talking to his church in Nashville, if, if you're listening this morning and you're defeated and exhausted and broken, you're barely hanging in, and to make matters worse, you can't change yourself. And you see judgment and hell awaiting you in your future. And you realize you're in so deep by now that you need God to come rescue you from yourself. 
then you're finally ready for the grace of God. His grace is not an added high-octane ingredient to boost your engine performance. His grace is his loving care for the crippled, the dead, and the blind. So here's what I recommend. The instant you sense his approach to you today, as he passes by, don't turn away. Your Savior is near. Friends, I love the prevenient grace of God. The love of God that takes initiative with beggars like me. But here's the thing, and this is where the story is going to go. The grace of God always creates a stir. It gives new sight and new life to the humble, but it it always stirs up and intensifies the blindness of the proud. That's what we're going to see in the rest of the story. In fact, the rest of the story through chapter 9, it's just a series of conversations in response to what God has done by Christ through his grace to this man. And they're actually pretty funny. So I'm going to watch the clock, and we're going to try to work our way through them the best that we can. But they're funny. They're ironic. They're real. They're human. You can, you can see them in your mind, but they, they pack a powerful punch as you begin to read it. So verse 8, here's the first conversation. This man has gone off and he's washed his eyes the way Jesus instructed him. And verse 8 says, The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It's he. But others said, No, it's just someone who looks like him. And he kept saying, I'm the man. So you've got to imagine the humor and the irony here. He comes back to his his neighbors, his friends, who he he grew up with, who knew him well, and and some of them are split. Some say, oh, that's him. He was blind. Now he sees. Others people were saying, no, that's just somebody that looks like him. So they look at him and say, are you really him? And he's like, yes, I'm really him. Well, no, go look in the mirror. Tell us, are you really that man? He's like, well, I've never really seen myself before, but I look in the mirror. I recognize myself now. Yes, it's me. I'm him. It's hilarious when you sit and read it. And so in verse 10, they say to him, then how are your eyes opened? And he answered, very important, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? Speaking of Jesus. And he said, I don't know. But here I want, as we go through the conversations, I want you to watch. I want you to watch the spiritual sight begin to progress in this man's life. With his neighbors, and they asked him who did this, he said it was a man they called Jesus. In fact, if you realize in the story, he has not yet actually seen Jesus with his newly opened physical eyes. He went away to wash, and as he washed and he opened and can see, he went back to his neighborhood. He hasn't yet seen Jesus physically. But if you think about his spiritual sight, like the the lens or the aperture of a camera, it's slowly beginning to open by God's grace. More light is beginning to come in. And so in the second conversation, starting in verse 13, his neighbors, they they naturally are going to turn to their church leaders to try to help them make sense of what this man is saying and what's actually happened. So in verse 13, the neighbors, they bring this man to the Pharisees who had formerly, they, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind and This is important. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees, they again asked how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. But here's the deal. By this time in the religious life of God's people, 
the Pharisees and the scribes, they had taken the, the laws of God, the commands of God in the Old Testament, the principles like you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And they had created a whole system of codes to outline what actually constituted work. How do I actually know if what I'm doing is violating God's law or not? And one of the things that they had determined violated God's law was the kneading or the making of dough. You couldn't knead dough on the Sabbath because that violated God's law to not work on the Sabbath. Here's the thing. In John chapter 9, the word we have there for mud, some of your translations will have clay. The word there is the exact same word for dough. So with Jesus spitting on the dirt and kneading the mud, kneading the dirt into mud, that would be the same as saying he was kneading dough. And so what happened is a controversy began to arise. Rather than celebrating the fact this man who had been born blind can now see, the religious leaders are focused on the controversy around how it happened. And we'll see that they're actually split on their understanding. Some of the Pharisees, verse 16 says, said, this man is not from God for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. I mean, they're convinced that their interpretation of the Sabbath and the principle of the work on the Sabbath is right. And therefore, Jesus is a lawbreaker. He's a sinner. But others, other Pharisees said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. You see, only the, only the power of God could do what we see just happened right here in this man. So I don't know that you're right about him at this point. And so they said to the blind man, verse 17, they come back to him. What do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And the blind man says he is a prophet. The lens is beginning to open wider and the light from God's grace is coming in and flooding in. It was the man they, they called Jesus who did this and now in the opening of his eyes that God is giving him spiritually, he looks at the Pharisees and says, this, this man is from God. He, he's a prophet. He's beginning to see more clearly while the religious leaders are only getting cloudier in their vision. So they're not satisfied, though. There's a third conversation. The religious leaders are now going to go get his mom and dad. We can't make heads or tails of what this guy's saying, so let's go get mom and dad. So verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who received sight. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. They just start with the obvious, right? Let's just start with the easiest, clearest, most truthful answer we can give. Yes, that's our son. Yes, he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll, he'll speak for himself. Well, thanks, mom and dad. You know, it's a lot of help there. But before we get down on mom and dad for not helping out more, I, I think the way the story is built is we're supposed to begin to, to see the courage that God is creating by his grace in the heart of this man whose eyes Jesus has opened because that's what we begin to see. Verse 22 tells us, John tells us that his parents said these things because they feared the Jews for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. 
So there is fear that's driving the way the parents are responding, but there's a courage being cultivated in the heart of this man whose spiritual eyes are being opened to the fullness of who God is in Christ. And we begin to see that take shape in the fourth conversation. The prosecution is demanding that the witness get back on the stand again. So in verse 24, for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. What they're saying is honor God and, and agree with us. Give glory to God. and Blaspheme this man, Jesus. That's what's actually would be happening. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. But this man responds in a, a beautiful and courageous honesty. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I, I don't know. One thing I do know, though, I was blind and now I see. And the power of a personal testimony over a bad argument is tremendous. And I think what has hit me at this point in the story as I was reading through it this week is that so far where we are, no one has actually celebrated that this man who was born blind can actually see. His neighbors, we don't have any record of them celebrating with joy what's going on in his life. His parents are too afraid of the religious leaders. We don't get any indication that they were celebrating. The religious leaders who, who the neighbors come to, who, who come to this man, who see this miracle and work of God in his life, he was blind and now he sees, they're not celebrating. It is yet to be an occasion for joy for anyone except for the man. And the truth of who Jesus is is getting more and more clear to his heart. But his testimony wasn't enough to satisfy the religious leaders. So in verse 26, they say to him, what did he do to you? Let's get down to brass tacks. How did he open your eyes? And you gotta love the response, verse 27. He answered them, I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. Listen to courage. This man who had been completely disregarded his entire life, who's begging, who's been blind since birth, and we've, we've seen, we've understood, we've talked about in the previous weeks the way the world that he lived in would treat him because of his disability. His entire life, he's been cast aside here. And here he is with the religious leaders of his day showing a courage that can only be explained by the cultivation of God's grace in his heart. I, I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear again? Do you want to become one of his disciples? What a response. This guy that the disciples, Jesus' disciples, had already put in a box and were beginning to make judgments about when they first saw him it is far more complex than anyone would ever see. That's what boxes do. They, they simplify people. And this guy is actually pretty funny. He's quick. He's witty. By the grace of God, he's courageous. Everyone in the story so far seems to be afraid of these religious leaders except for this man. He's enjoying the prevenient grace of God at work in his heart. But he lit a fuse. And so in verse 28, it, it says that the leaders, they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. 
We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And so the controversy the theological leaders stirred up by this man being healed only goes to expose a greater degree of their own blindness, their own deceit. Why? Because they're not really disciples of Moses. Because Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 46, just a couple chapters earlier, if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for Moses wrote about me. So when the religious leaders challenge this man, in verse 30, he answers, why? This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This blind man, this man who had been begging on the side of the road is doing the basics of biblical reasoning. I once was blind. I met this guy. Now I see. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin. And that's not a statement about depravity. That's a personal slight about being born blind. That's the a cruel twist of a dagger shoved between his shoulder blades and turned. You were born in utter sin blind man would you teach us and so they cast him out see right there is the answer to the disciples first question a clear point of reference to what had shaped the disciples thinking up to that point the pharisees the religious leaders just answered the question you it's your sin you're a sinner that's why you're blind but their religious rage is so great, they miss the irony of their own confession. They're saying that he was indeed born blind and that Jesus opened his eyes. But in their pride and in their anger, they kick this man out of the church. That's what happens. And so that gets us to the fifth and final conversation in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. They had kicked him out of the church. And having found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, now, mind you, don't forget in the story, this man has not yet seen Jesus with his newly opened physical eyes. He went away to wash off the mud. He hasn't seen Jesus yet. But Jesus sought him out. Hearing that he had been cast out of the church by the religious leaders, Jesus went looking for him. Now understand, if you keep reading John's gospel, it's no accident that in chapter 10, John begins to talk about Jesus being the good shepherd who gathers his lost sheep. But Jesus goes to seek him out. And he asks him when he finds him, do you believe in the Son of Man? The, the language that Jesus uses here, he's not asking this man, do you believe in the existence of the Son of Man? It's not about existence. The language that Jesus is using is really the language of invitation. He's asking this man if he's placing his trust in the Son of Man. The revelation of God to man. The light of the world. 
the Son of Man of whom the Old Testament spoke about, the one who would come and rescue the children of God, the people of God, and take them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the wonderful kingdom of God and light. Do you believe in him? Is he your hope? In verse 36, this man answered Jesus, and who is he, sir, that, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. It's he who is speaking to you. I mean, to do it justice, you just need to pause for a minute and hit pause on the computer. You've just got to imagine that. His entire life from the moment he had been born, close your eyes, it's looked just like that. Utter darkness cast away. He meets a man one day who comes towards him. He doesn't call out to him, doesn't cry out to him. He had only heard by hearsay what the man's name actually was, but he comes to him and what had been darkness for his whole life has been opened up and he can see, but he never actually saw the man, but now he sees him. And the one in whom God has promised, who would be a light of the world, the rescuer of his people, the eternal king of God's people is standing in front of him saying, you see him, it's me. Could you imagine the look on that man's face as he and Jesus lock eyes in that moment? The only right response is exactly what he does. In verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. The one who had been born physically blind has not only been given by the grace of God physical sight, but spiritual sight as well. The aperture, the lens on his heart is fully open and the light of God is flooding in. The provenient grace of Jesus sought him and opened his eyes that he might see clearly. And now he sees Jesus and he has Jesus and in having Jesus, he has every promise that God has ever made to his people. And friends, you've got to understand the same holds true for you and I. All you need to get in on the grace of God is to know your need. To own your own blindness. You don't have to love him as you're supposed to love him first. You just have to know your need and be willing to receive him. Friends, if that's you this morning, I want you to know he's already moving towards you in his grace already. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. He is the one who gives sight to those who know they're blind. But to those who refuse to own their neediness, their blindness only intensifies. In verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him, are we also blind? These religious leaders, these so-called disciples of Moses, they, they've read their Bibles their entire life, but their heart hasn't been hungry for the Messiah the Bible spoke of. And so now they're actually focused on the law as their means of approval before God. And the more they read, the blinder they become. Back in John 5, Jesus had said, 
You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They couldn't see Jesus clearly because they didn't want to. It wasn't an issue of ignorance. It was an issue of pride. It was an issue of sin. They were actually now using God's word to push away God's living word incarnate, the one it spoke of. And so Jesus says to them in verse 41, if you were actually blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. See, Jesus is saying if you, if you were only desperate in recognizing your sin, if you would only own your blindness like this beggar, I could help you. But you're so proud. You're so sure of yourself. Even when the light is shining on you, your rejection of me is just intensifying your spiritual blindness. And these religious leaders who had experienced God's word, they stood face to face with God's word made flesh. They walked away more burdened. That's how they experienced it. Their pride only intensified their blindness. They were convinced that they could secure a better future for themselves than Jesus could. Friends, what about you this morning? How are you experiencing God's word? Is the lens in your heart opening up to let more light in? Can you see? Do you, do you sense your neediness, your blindness? I want you to know that if that's so, Jesus, just as he sought out this rejected blind man and made him a courageous follower and worshiper of God, the, the provenient grace of God in Jesus is seeking you out to make you a courageous worshiper of him as well. For God so loved the world, John said, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Can you see Jesus this morning? Will you hope in him alone? Friends, we're all still learning how to see Jesus more clearly. But that's the beauty of being his disciple. God progressively opens up the lens of our heart to let our eyes adjust to the light that comes in. But a day is coming when the lens is going to be thrown wide open. And the fullness of the light of God, the light of the world is going to flood in and we are going to see him as he is in the fullness of his glory and we get to be with him forever. Until then, my friends, my prayer for all of us is that God would give us a renewed vision. That he would enable us to see Jesus more clearly today, tomorrow, and the next day. Let me pray for us this morning and then I'll give you some direction on how we might be able to respond together to God's word.
Father, we thank you that you don't wait for us to get our act together. You don't, you don't wait for us to figure out how to love you in a particular way before you come and pour out the merciful, saving, forgiving, sustaining, loving grace of your Son into our hearts. You come to us first. Lord, we ask for our joy and for the fullness of your glory to be seen in and through our lives that you would give us clear sight of Jesus today. Lord, whatever lies our heart has grasped onto that convince us that we're the ones who can ensure our, our brightest hope for tomorrow, Lord, that you would do away with those, you would demolish those for the light of your glory, the light of your grace and mercy and the person of your son would burn those things away from our heart. Help us to see Jesus today the way that this blind beggar saw him when he came to him. Lord, that takes a miracle of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask this morning that you would do that very thing in Jesus' name for his beautiful glory and our deepest joy. Amen. If you are listening this morning and you would like to talk more about what you heard, what God's word has says, or maybe you've just got a question and you want to hear from one of the pastors, I want to encourage you, please reach out to us. You can email us at pastors at redemptionhill.org and one of us will get back with you. Uh, if you. If you're just joining us during this season online, someone's encouraged you to, to watch and to join us. We're glad that you have. Uh, if you can go to redemptionhill.com and you'll see right there on the homepage, there's a digital connection card that will let us get to know you and you get to know us and connect you with what God is doing in the life of this church even during this season. We're, we're glad that you're with us. We want to get to know you and help you get to know us better. So go to redemptionhill.com and fill out that digital connection card and we'll begin the process of, of talking to each other and connecting with each other. And until then, friends, now receive this benediction from the Lord. May the God of hope who gives sight to the blind open your eyes and fill you with all joy and all peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may overflow in hope. We love you. See you next week. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us at redemptionhill.com.